Hello out there and welcome to Because I Said So, the only parenting podcast on the entire World Wide Web that's worth listening to, as you will no doubt soon discover. I'm your host, renegade psychologist John Rosemond, whose licensing board wishes I'd be abducted by aliens. For more on me and my mission slash ministry, to America's beleaguered parents, my websites are at parentguru.com and johnrosemond.com. When I was a child, the thought of sleeping with my parents never occurred to me. Never. Being vaporized by a Russian hydrogen bomb was more likely than sleeping with my parents. Like every other kid I knew back then in the halcyon days of the 1950s, I slept in my own bed, in my own room, which was my imagination chamber. My parents bade me good night and turned out the light as they left. Thus, abandoned and clinically depressed, I'm kidding, of course, I was usually asleep within minutes. That was the 1950s, when putting a child to bed was a simple, straightforward affair. In 1976, all that changed with the first publication of a book titled The Family Bed by Minnesota housewife Tyne Thevenin. Out of the thin air of her own experience, Thevenin proposed that sleeping alone caused children numerous psychological problems. They felt isolated. They felt unwanted. They felt unloved. They developed separation anxieties. And the monsters they imagined under their beds and in their closets were symbols of their feelings of vulnerability and abandonment. Thevenin made it sound as if children who slept in their own beds were destined to become mass murderers or lifetime occupants of rubber rooms and medieval insane asylums, or both. After all, Lizzie Borden didn't sleep with her parents, and neither did Hitler or Ernest Hemingway, and there you have it. For odd reasons, the family bed caught on in America's mother culture, and co-sleeping, as it became known, became synonymous with good mothering. I say good mothering because... I've never met a father who wants his kids sleeping with him and his wife. Or I should say ex-wife. Because the minute a married couple allows a child in their bed on a regular basis, nightly basis, their marriage is over. Mind you, the two people in question, male and female, may continue to live together and even refer to one another as my husband and my wife. But let's face it, folks. If a child is in your bed on a nightly basis, the marriage is over. And authentic, as opposed to make-believe marriage, is two people, two people, 
and two people only, one biological male, one biological female. When a male and female who are married invite their children into the marital bed, the marriage is no longer authentic. It's a threesome or a foursome. Sometimes, heaven forbid, it's even a moresome. To give an example, Mayim Bialik, who is now one of the hosts of television's Jeopardy, which can't seem to get its act together, Bialik became an outspoken advocate for co-sleeping when her children were young. She claimed in interviews that the family bed had not interfered in the least with her marriage and that her husband was all for it. They subsequently divorced. Maybe they divorced for reasons having nothing to do with the fact that she insisted upon co-sleeping with her kids. But the facts are, A, Mayim Bialik insisted upon co-sleeping and became a spokesperson for the practice, and B, she and her husband got a divorce. Over the years, I've talked with a number of men who report that co-sleeping was a major factor in their divorce. I've even talked with women who admit that letting a child or children sleep in the marital bed was the worst decision they've ever made, that it led to their divorce. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, as they say. How did something so obviously unnecessary and even bizarre become so popular? Well, I identify four primary reasons. First, Promoters of the family bed scared mothers with completely invented psychological boogeymen. Said promoters, including Tyne Thevenin, claimed that sleeping alone caused children all manner of emotional problems. Mind you, there is no body of research that supports the contentions of family bed advocates. Researchers have found, in fact that kids who co-sleep have, on average, no fewer and no more problems as young adults than kids who sleep by themselves. In other words, when co-sleepers and non-co-sleepers are in their early 20s, psychological tests can't tell them apart. The question then becomes, if co-sleeping imparts no benefit to the child in question, why co-sleep? That question leads us into the next reason such a completely unnecessary and strange practice became so popular. Second reason, once a nouveau parenting practice attains a certain level of popularity, and especially when celebrity moms endorse it, women begin jumping on the bandwagon without really thinking it through. It's the lemming effect, or, as it was once expressed, if all your friends jump off a cliff, are you going to follow, the, follow them? Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of American mothers in these upside-down days who are jumping off the cliff, the latest dumb parenting thing, because the latest dumb parenting thing, in this case, co-sleeping in the family bed, has become popular in mother culture. Third, promoters of the family bed twisted and omitted facts, very conveniently so, they claimed that humans in a primitive state, they used Amazonian tribes as a specific, specific example, always co-slept, which is mostly true. What they left out, however, 
was the fact that as soon as the primitive peoples in question emerged from the Stone Age and began living in houses with four walls and a roof, the houses in question feature separate bedrooms for the children. In other words, co-sleeping is only, quote, natural, end quote, when there is no alternative. Like when the entire family is living in a teepee out on the plains of the 19th century American West. And fourth, because the promoters of the family bed promised children who felt better, and post-1960s parenting is all about a child's feelings, and women are much, much more feeling-oriented than men, this propaganda peeled to women. The question becomes, how has this family bed thing happened in such a short period of time? Willie and I, my wife and I, and no, I'm not married to a guy named Willie. I'm married to a woman named Wilma, but because of the Flintstones, I decided to rename her Willie, and it's stuck. Willie and I have never run across anyone our age or thereabouts who slept with their parents, and people in our generation did not let our kids sleep with us, and yet thousands and thousands of the baby boomer generation's kids are allowing their kids to sleep with them. This has happened because of attachment parenting propaganda. In this case, the propaganda says, and it comes from people with impressive capital letters after their names, like pediatrician Dr. William Sears. Does it come as any surprise that Sears, who is the figurehead of the attachment parenting movement, lives in California, the state that seems to consistently give rise to one bizarre fad after another? So Dr. Sears and other spokespeople in this movement began about 40 or so years ago telling people that kids wouldn't bond. That was the word they used. Kids wouldn't bond properly without attachment parenting, which included the requirement if you really want to bond, everybody in the family must sleep in the same bed. I guess if the bed isn't big enough, you get rid of the bed and you all sleep on the floor. I mean, the most bizarre thing I could think of as a kid was sleeping with my parents, but we're talking California here. So, very quickly, all over the USA, moms who were too big to fail began sleeping with their kids. The dads I talked to, most of them go along with it because their wives, women now being the head of the household and even most two-parent households, insist upon it and the men just cave in. All right, dear, has become the stock mantra of the American weenie husband. Have I mentioned that men are becoming wimps and that many of these wimp guys do chest bumps with one another when their teams win and drink a lot of beer and burp a lot and otherwise act like they think men should act, which isn't like men should act at all, but I digress. Back to attachment parenting in the family bed. Once again, what we have here is people with impressive capital letters after their names, like pediatrician Dr. William Sears, MD, giving stupid advice that causes nothing but problems for people. So whether you're a single parent or a married with children parent, 
How do you get a child or children out of your bed when they've been sleeping with you for years, maybe? Are you ready? Because I have the answer to that question. How do you get children out of your bed when they've been sleeping with you for years, maybe? Lock your door. Now, the first night that you lock the kids out of your room, make sure you don't have any responsibilities like having to go to work the next day. Because this should come as no surprise, you are not going to get much, if any, sleep. The first night you lock the child or children in question out of your room, they will probably act like they're going to become lifetime tenants of the loony bin. It will surely be the most horrifying night of your life, but you, being an adult, you can do this. Just lock them out. And when they come to your room and discover that the door is locked and begin screaming for you to open it, weeping piteously for you to open it, and then being completely silent to make you think they've killed themselves because you locked your door, just say through the door, I talked with a doctor today, kids. He's a very famous doctor, in fact, and I paid a lot of money to talk to him, and he told me, we can't let you sleep with us ever again. So go sleep in your own bed or scream all night long if that's what you need to do to discover that we're not going to let you into our bed again. We're going to do what the doctor told us to do. So a couple in Utah recently did exactly that with their 13-year-old daughter who'd been co-sleeping with them for years. When said daughter discovered that her parents' bedroom door was locked, she first tried to beat it down while acting completely insane. took about a week for the screaming to stop and for her to begin sleeping in her own bed. With another couple who had two kids, ages nine and six, it took one night. It was a horrible night for all concerned, but it only took one night. The children in question banged and screamed and wept, wailed, until three o'clock in the morning, and then everything went quiet for about five minutes, during which the parents heard the kids whispering to one another on the other side of their locked door, and finally the nine-year-old girl said, Mom? Dad? We're going back to our beds now, but we'll be back tomorrow night. Despite the threat, the kids slept in their own beds from that night on. Folks, Beginning in the 1960s, the late 1960s to be specific, people with capital letters after their names have come up with one ding-dong parenting idea after another. Not a one of these ding-dong ideas has been confirmed by dispassionate research, much less improved the lots of parents or children. Since these ding-dong ideas began to proliferate, Raising a child to adulthood has gone from being a relatively simple and straightforward affair to being a huge, mind-bending hassle, stressful, anxiety-arousing, guilt-producing. Like Sean Hannity keeps on saying, bless his patriotic heart, parenting is the hardest thing you'll ever do. No, it isn't, Sean, unless you do it the new way the way most people have been doing it since the 1960s. And as for the effect of the ding-dong ideas on kids, 
the mental health of children over the same 50-year span has gone down the toilet. So concerning my advice to lock children out of your bedroom, if that's what it takes to get them out of your bed, let me assure you that 99.99% of psychologists, my colleagues, when they hear that, are going to start howling in protest, claiming that I'm the reincarnation of Jack the Ripper or Attila the Hun or something like that. Well, let me assure you, if 99.99% of psychologists disagree with me, which they do, by the way, on most things, then I must be right. But before I leave you today, I'm ethically bound to tell you, the listener, that my wife and I sleep with our 20-month-old, 8-pound, all-white, cute-as-a-button toy schnauzer, Hannah. When our kids found out we sleep with Hannah, they pointed out that we never let them sleep with us, to which I said, we aren't trying to get Hannah to move out. So that wraps another exciting, informative, and sometimes, hopefully humorous, episode of Because I Said So the podcast that strives to make child-rearing simple again. I'm glad you joined me and hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can find and subscribe to my equally erudite Substack at substack.com. See you next week. Meanwhile, keep on rocking in the free world, folks.